Thanks to you at home for joining me in this hour. Living in the Trump era is often described as sitting inside a slowly boiling pot. There are things that should alarm us, but because they're happening incrementally and because they're happening repeatedly, because Trump shocks our system day after day after day, they become normalized. And there is one area of our national politics that probably more than anything else is boiling hot while also terribly, terribly normal. This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will liberate America from these villains once and for all. This is the final battle. America has to be liberated from villains. Former President Trump, now candidate Trump, posted that video just a few hours ago. Trump claimed that he believes political violence is never acceptable, but rather than actually denouncing political violence, Trump continues to put out videos like this, filled with incredibly violent political rhetoric. And in the meantime, there have been plenty of acts of political violence. You might remember in April of last year, after Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg indicted Trump in the Stormy Daniels hush money case, DA Bragg started receiving threatening letters filled with white powder. One read very plainly, Alvin, I am going to kill you. At the same time, a senior enforcement so- law enforcement source told NBC News that Alvin Bragg had been the subject of several hundred threats a couple dozen of which were considered to threaten serious harm. Down in Georgia, where Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is prosecuting Trump for his alleged election interference, the threats got so bad they they had to actually make an arrest. A man in Alabama was arrested for allegedly leaving threatening messages for DA Willis and saying things like, when you charge Trump on that fourth indictment, anytime you're alone, be looking over your shoulder. That connection between Trump's vilification of these men and women and the death threats made against them seems pretty cut and dry. But rather than denouncing any of it, Trump fans the flames. Here's a snippet from another video that Trump posted online a week ago today. So God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists. I'm not going to show you that whole thing. And I I know it's sort of amusing to imagine Donald Trump getting up before dawn to go do God's work or whatever the idea is there. It is less amusing that this clip shows images of Jack Smith, Letitia James, Alvin Bragg and Fonnie Willis over a narration about the final battle against the Marxists. All of those people have received threats. And yet Donald Trump continues to rile his supporters up against them. Special counsel Jack Smith was swatted on Christmas Day. That means someone called 911. And on this call, they said that Jack Smith had shot his wife. It was, of course, not true. This Sunday, Judge Tanya Chutkin was swatted. She is the judge overseeing the federal election interference case. Yesterday, news broke that someone had called in a bomb threat to the home of Judge Arthur Ngorand, the judge overseeing Trump's New York civil fraud case. Over and over and over again. Repeated rhetoric, 
repeated threats, and the danger just keeps increasing. That is the pot we have all been slowly boiling in. After Donald Trump's repeated exhortations about violence, the threat of violence has followed. And now we just sort of expect, I guess, that holding people in power accountable for their actions, that that doing that is fundamentally risky, especially when one of those people is Donald Trump. Which is why I think this next story hasn't landed with as much of a splash as it should have. Today, Mediaite released bombshell reporting and audio of longtime Trump strategist Roger Stone allegedly threatening to kill Congressman Eric Swalwell and Gerald, Jared Nadler, both Democrats. Stay up and go find Swalwell and get this over with. It's time to do it. Then we'll see how brave the rest of them are. Either follow up, either Swalwell or Nadler has to die before the election. They need to get the message. Mediaite reports that that clip was Mr. Stone before the 2020 election, and the source that provided Mediaite with the audio told the organization that they believe Roger Stone was not joking. The source said it was definitely concerning that he was constantly planning violence with an NYPD officer and other militia groups. Now, NBC News has not independently confirmed this reporting or that audio. And Roger Stone denies the reporting. He claims the tape is an AI-generated deepfake. But these comments are not out of line with what we have heard from Roger Stone before. Here's video played by the January 6th committee, again, of Roger Stone before the 2020 election. I said, the Lord, and let's get right to the violence. That's what I'm Let's get right to the violence. We have to start smashing pumpkins, if you know what I mean. Roger Stone claims that video was also a deep fake. But again, we do know that Mr. Stone was actively in communication with the pro-Trump militia group, the Oath Keepers, around that time. Here he is on January 5th, the day before the attack on our Capitol, being ferried around D.C. by Oath Keeper security. You might remember the Oath Keepers as the group that was found guilty of literal seditious conspiracy for its role in the January 6th attack. Now, this week, Democrats introduced legislation to try to curtail paramilitary groups like the Oath Keepers, which is what you would expect from political leaders after an attack on the scale of January 6th. Condemn the violence, legislate to try and prevent it. That should be how every politician responds to that kind of attack right? It is not. Will you pardon the January 6 rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. I call them the J6 hostages, not prisoners. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist and an MSNBC contributor, and Tess Owen, senior reporter covering extremism for Vice News. Thank you both for being here to talk Thank about you. just a, a deeply distressing and weirdly, wildly under-discussed topic in American political life. And Michelle, I, I'll start with you just because I know you have a piece today that we're going to get to in a second. David French, one of your colleagues at the New York Times, also has a piece where he talks about the way in which the normalization of political violence 
in American life is at an unprecedented level and draws attention to the polling. I think it was last October, 33 percent of Republicans and 41 percent of pro-Trump Americans agree with the statement that because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. Am I paranoid in thinking I can imagine those numbers going up over the course of this year? No, I mean, I think that Trump is going to make sure that they go up. I mean, and this is sort of with Trump being somewhat in the background of our national conversation compared to where he had been, you know, for four ungodly years. But I th- and we've become so acculturated to it that it kind of takes new levels mm-hmm. of threat and violence to shock people. The, the slowly boiling pot. Yeah, exactly. And so nobody really bats an eye when you see another story about someone getting swatted, you know, someone calling the police on someone in a way that eventually somebody I think is going to get really hurt. But, you know, this is happening, the death threats to the judges in his criminal cases, to Jack Smith, election workers, election workers, right. Individual election workers. And you can, and you know, and we're coming up again on a very close election that a lot of people believe that he has led a lot of people to believe was stolen last time. So what, what lengths are they going to go to, to make sure that they get kind of quote unquote justice, especially if they believe that on the other end of it, President Donald Trump is going to be there to pardon them. Yeah. Uh, the, the people who he has heretofore called hostages, Tess. Um, I, I wonder if you can give, you've done such deep and essential reporting on this topic. I just wonder if you can give a sense of who these Americans are that heed the sort of clarion call as issued by Donald Trump and, and, and feel if they don't themselves resort to the threats and the violence, but understand it to be a necessary after effect of American public life that you should, you should have your life threatened because you're going after Donald Trump. Who are they and who's most vulnerable to this? Well, I think that the landscape of political violence and extremism has changed since January 6th. Um, but the grievances and the core conspiracy theories, they haven't gone away. And actually, they've become more entrenched and more mainstreamed. And I think, you know, part of that is the whitewashing of January 6th, um, where, you know, the rioters have been cast now as hostages, political hostages. Um, Trump has characterized himself as a victim of political persecution. There's been polling um, suggesting that I think a quarter of Americans um, believe the conspiracy theory that the January 6th was instigated by federal agents, undercover federal agents. And I think all of this is fueling this narrative um, that the Biden administration is politically corrupt hell-bent on jailing its opponents. And this has trickled not just from the fringes, but is, has, is kind of... Mainstreamed. Yes, has captivated the mainstream. And not just the Proud Boys, not just the Oath Keepers, but, reg, you know, regular people. Well, and yeah, regular people who heretofore, I keep saying heretofore, <laughs> I think it's because it's a serious topic. But Michelle, you know, you write about how the, the MAGA movement has wholly consumed the evangelical movement, right? We have the Iowa caucuses are in three days. And the most influential members of the evangelical movement have not endorsed Donald Trump, and he is probably going to win Iowa in a landslide. Right? right. So, I mean, there's a guy in Iowa named Bob Vanderplatz, who is the head of this group called the Family Leader, who until this year was really seen as this kingmaker. He had this incredibly powerful evangelical machine. And again and again and again, the people that he endorsed won the Iowa caucuses. They didn't necessarily go on to win the presidency. But, you know, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Ted Cruz, I believe he endorsed George W. Bush, but I have to double check that. But you see this again and again and again. He, the person he he's endorsed this time um, is 
will, is, is fighting, fighting for a very distant second. Ron DeSantis. You know? And I think what you've seen is that just as Donald Trump has destroyed the rights, faith in institutions that they've traditionally revered, like the FBI, you know, or the military, he's also destroyed their faith in a lot of traditional evangelical leaders, people who we used to think were very far right, but he's destroyed faith in them and another um, generation of much more militant and much more sort of media savvy and, um, you know, kind of huckstery startup, um, you know, kind of startup preachers have taken their place. And what you've seen again and again is that just as Republicans who try to stand up to Donald Trump have been jettisoned by the party. I think because they've never been able to hold hands and all do it together. So they just get picked off one by one. Yep. Something very similar happens with evangelical preachers in that you see evangelical preachers who raise qualms about the MAGA agenda and the people, rather than following them, they just leave their church and find a more maga church in the same town. Well, David French, I, I'm quoting liberally from him, I mean, suggests that they don't even need the church anymore. That in a way, Trump has become, not in a way, Trump has, they will say, become their savior. A lot well, of them right. depart, the, they leave the pew, and, I and they go to the some, rally. And I think that in some ways, I mean, I think in some ways you could see this as a new religion. Yes. Well, it's you like know? Christian nationalism. Yeah, right. It? Of yeah. course it's Christian. Right. It's Christian nationalism. And there's a point at which Christian nationalism departs so much from the tenets of traditional mm-hmm. evangelicalism that it just becomes a it's new faith. Thing. Yeah. And, and, and not to invoke the name of your, your storied um, uh, place of work, but it is, it is all, it is vice signaling <laughs> as, um, as the New York times puts it rather than virtue signaling that the mm-hmm. rage is the, is, is the, the homily, if you will. And that this isn't a temporary, thing that is necessarily a a phenomenon of the Trump era, but it has awakened in the heart of America something much darker, Tess, a a, a rage and an anger and a grievance that is going to be very hard to put back in the bottle, if you will. And I also think that the danger of Christian nationalism is that they don't just feel that they're doing Trump's bidding, but they feel like they're doing God's God's bidding, bidding. Um, that they have this higher, higher authority or, you know, justification going forward for any kinds of violence that they have to commit in the name. What is so stunning about that is this week, I think it was last Saturday, Trump releases an ad called God made Trump. And it is literally, you know, chapter and verse placing Trump as the a disciple of God, God's chosen messenger, or warrior, whatever you want to call it, he's playing directly into that sentence. And this is language that Bannon has used, Roger Stone has used. This is a, a this is what they a, a core vision or a core idea that they really use to sort of mobilize and keep the attention of his flock. And in the meantime, what's what's a good Republican supposed to do, right, Michelle? I mean, that's your colleague Jamel Bowie. It's just a New York Times, you know, murderer's <laughs> row here. But he writes, uh, "I'll excerpt. This is his latest piece on the net effect of Trump's threats on the Republican Party. In all likelihood, Trump's threats have also worked to suppress the growth of a meaningful anti-Trump faction within the GOP." It's hard under normal circumstances to take a stand against the leader of your political party. And now Trump can try, whether he's the nominee or not, to use the fervor of his followers and acolytes to tilt the playing field in his direction, to use the example of those Republicans who have crossed him as a warning to wavering lawmakers, 
to anyone who resists the force of his will. Right. And we know this. I mean, I believe that Jamel points this out in his column, but you saw after, I mean, the reason that Donald Trump is now the front runner for the Republican nomination is because the Republicans in the Senate after January 6th, you know, many of them knew that he had fomented an insurrection, betrayed his oath of office, should be impeached. And according to Mitt Romney, at least some of them didn't vote to impeach because unlike him, they did not have the money to pay for their own personal security. Yeah. And it comes down to that simple fact of, you know, if you can withstand the terror fear, if you have the resources or the backbone, maybe you'll stand up against him. But most people don't. And and the net effect on the justice system, I think, Tess, could be profound as you look at all these judges who are facing these direct threats from the plaintiff in their courtroom. Right. And I mean, the threats against I mean, and this is how the landscape has kind of evolved, because rather than the street based kind of mobilizations that we were seeing in 2020 in the lead up to January 6th, now it's this diffuse um, like sort of environment, a threat environment, you know, where elected officials, um, uh, election officials, election workers, judges, judges, judges who rule um, unfavorably towards the former president. Um, you know, lawmakers, Democrats, or even probably more so Republicans, moderate Republicans, who kind of don't stay in line. Um, it's not just them, but it's their families who get these death, those torrent of death threats. And this has been something that, that has been an ongoing issue for, for, for years and becoming worse. Yeah. I would also say, in addition to this, the real fear that it creates, mm. it's a sign of a dying democracy when you don't have when you have people who can act unchecked and threaten the lives of those who would seek to curtail their power. And I think what you're saying as well about the normalization of, polit- of, of, of threats and threats of violence, what the kind, of, the kind of environment that that creates. And I think that a lot of you know, people who study extremism or report on extremism, what we're more worried about in the year to come isn't necessarily a January 6th style event, but lone wolf, lone wolves who kind of hear these threats and maybe feel inspired by them to take it one step further. And I think that's really concerning. It is a deeply distressing moment in American life. Um, but thank you for helping me analyze and understand it. Really thank appreciate you. you. Michelle thank Goldberg, you. Tesso, and thanks for making the time tonight. Coming up, <clears throat> Trump's immunity U-turn from saying the 2020 election was a long way from over and that he was challenging the results as a political candidate to his new line, that the election was long over and that he was questioning the results as part of his official presidential duties. But first, is everything going right for Nikki Haley or is everything going really quite wrong? Why winning New Hampshire may not be in her best interest, we're gonna explain coming up next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
Nikki Haley has been in the pocket of the open borders establishment donors her entire career, and uh, she's a globalist. You know, she likes the globe. She's a globalist. She likes the globe. That was Donald Trump at a recent campaign stop in Iowa going after former Governor Nikki Haley in the way that only Donald Trump can. As polls show Haley rising, Trump has ramped up his attacks on Haley, the woman he once picked to be his ambassador to the United Nations, presumably because of her love of globes. This week, Trump released a new ad criticizing Haley over her past comments on immigration. It features Trump's signature xenophobia. Nikki Haley refused to call illegals criminals. We don't need to talk about them as criminals. They're not. Illegals are criminals, Nikki. That's what illegal means. Now that she's a modest threat to Trump's dominance, Governor Haley should probably expect more of this. As the bulwarks Jonathan V. Last writes, if Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire, then she will get relentlessly attacked by Trump. She'll be forced to attack Trump herself. MAGA will go from distrusting her to loathing her. Trump will transform his attitude toward her from benign disdain to angry contempt. And she will be exposed by Republican voters for how little support she actually has. In short, winning New Hampshire ends her career in the Trump Republican Party. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, um, you've been writing amazing um, analysis of the Haley campaign, which we are going to get to momentarily. But I do wonder what you think about this moment for Nikki Haley and whether it is the best of times or might it actually be the worst of times? Well, I mean, I, I usually agree very much with Jonathan V. Last. He's he's brilliant. Um, I don't agree with this take at all. I think, um, you know, she look, if she wants to be president, she needs New Hampshire. She needs to do really well there, preferably win so that she can have a chance in South Carolina. Now, look, if she does win New Hampshire, it will get real ugly real fast. He's 100 percent right about that. When you sort of combine you know, the, the inherent racism and sexism impulse that, that Trump world, I'm sure, is going to go to immediately with the sort of South Carolina rough and tumble politicking tradition, uh, which she knows quite well. But I'm not sure how, well, you know, it could get a lot worse between now and when the primary is. Uh, it, it could be really ugly. And, and yeah, I don't sure I don't think I draw a distinction between, you know, nuanced uh, disdain, whatever his words were. I mean, I think either she's going to fight for this or not, which I think is like the existential question for Nikki Haley's campaign. Uh, is she actually campaigning for second place or is she actually going to go to the mat and uh, take on Donald Trump if she has the opportunity to get a clean shot at him? Well, and you make the point in your most recent piece about um, Nikki Haley and how she positions herself as someone who speaks hard truths. I will read an excerpt. I've always spoken in hard truths is one of Haley's trademark claims. In reality, the bluntness she discharges is reserved mostly for easy targets, the media, President Joe Biden and Kamala. When it comes to speaking the hardest Republican truths of all about Trump, Haley's words fall feebly and her voice acquires a slightly halting tone and slower cadence. She can also convey an impression of being terrified of saying the wrong things, of offending too many MAGA or MAGA adjacent voters or certainly of Trump himself. I mean, this is the question. If this becomes a two man race, what is your a two person race? I should say, what is your expectation for her appetite? to actually speak truth to Trump. 
That is the question. I mean, she is capable of, of, you know, taking on big fights. I mean, her history in South Carolina shows that she will, you know, she will reply hard. She will fight back. She will throw, you know, all kinds of attacks. I mean, she's, she's tough, but she has not been tough with Trump. I mean, her rap on Trump has been really, really passive. It's uh, rough, rightly or wrongly, uh, chaos follows him, which you can just diagram, right? I mean, first of all, rightly or wrongly, she won't judge, and the chaos follows him. He has nothing to do with, you know, January 6th or the 91 counts against him. It just sort of passively follows, you know, upon, you know, wherever Donald Donald Trump goes. You know, at some point, she's going to have to use the material she has to work with, which is obviously quite plentiful. But ultimately, you sort of have to wonder, is she fighting for, you know, positioning herself, fighting the good fight for 2028, or to be Trump's vice president? I think it's quite telling that she hasn't ruled out the latter, uh, whereas DeSantis and, and Christie, before he got out, uh, did. Well, but that that raises the question, not to go back to the Jonathan V. Last quote, but if she is running for a future in this Republican Party, this is a base that does not forget. I mean, <clears throat> like if you if you cross Trump, you are you have crossed him forever. And one wonders whether she could even try and go toe to toe with him and then ameliorate her her image, if you will, to have a fighting chance in 2020, which begs the question, why is she in this? Did you get the sense that the Haley campaign really thought they were going to go up against Trump? Um, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think, you know, I think now that, that she's actually positioned, I mean, I think of the one non-Trump person in the race, she actually has a shot, I think, much more than DeSantis, um, because I think, you know, she obviously could do well, or she, she could do much better in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Um, you know, does she want this or not? I mean, that is the question. Why get in? I, I think you draw a distinction, though, that is, you know, it's, there's not a distinction between whether she crosses Trump irreparably versus whether she has already. I mean, I think most people would already uh, dismiss Nikki Haley, you know, at least in Trump world and also Trump voter world, as someone that hasn't already sort of jumped off the reservation to run against him. I mean, it's not a very subtle group and it's not a very subtle way of thinking about another person and an opponent. What is your impression of her as a candidate? Because you do point out some of her malapropisms and a strange word salady kind of remarks. I direct everyone to The Atlantic to read more. Um, but I mean, in terms of her her gifts as a candidate, it's, I think, surprising to to many people that the last person presumably standing here is Nikki Haley, given the field that, you know, she came in with. Well, sort of the, the, the Joe Biden line, which is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the, the alternative. And the alternative, as far as the Republican field goes, uh, has been really, really weak to begin with. And now it's just, you know, it's Trump, but it's also Ron DeSantis, who she's a much better campaigner than. I mean, you've seen her on the debate stages. She's quite impressive. impressive. She has a very commanding um, way of delivering sound bites. She sort of physically, you know, sort of positions herself. She takes stage direction. She's like that at her events, too. But then you scratch just a little little bit beneath the surface. You listen to what she's saying, and it's clear that, that, that she's just like full of head scratchers. It's like she'll say things that really, she, you know, if she gets any follow-up whatsoever, which she obviously will if she's around much longer, uh, she will just completely, you know, either disassemble or just make no sense whatsoever. And the, the answer about, you know, the Civil War, which didn't include slavery, is sort of a perfect example of this. I mean, she gets this very basic question and immediately just doesn't know what to do because you know, slavery is considered a radical position to take against in today's Republican Party. And, and you know, it became like a real bad story for her. Uh, well, unbelievably, Mark Leibovich, there are three days left till Iowa, 10 days to New Hampshire. Here we go, my friend. Buckle up. Here we go. Thank you for your uh, time. 
Yeah, it'll be fun. I'm not in Iowa, but I'll be in New Hampshire. So we'll see you next week. See you next week. Coming up, the U.S. launches new strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen for a second straight evening. We will have a live report from the Pentagon. But first, Joe Biden gets out of the White House and is hitting the trail to tout a very important message in Pennsylvania. That's next. Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. If you notice, they're feeling much better about how the economy is doing. What we haven't done is letting them know exactly who got it changed. That's the part. That's what's happening. If you look at the consumer confidence measures, they're way up. Look at across the board. Everybody's doing better and they believe it. They know it. And they're just beginning to sink in. President Biden visited Allentown, Pennsylvania this afternoon as American Bridge, an outside Democratic group supporting Biden, announced a $140 million ad campaign to remind women and working class voters why they voted against Trump in 2020. The group plans to use voter testimonials to focus on Trump's role in overturning abortion access and the January 6th attacks, among other things. The secret sauce is abortion and freedom plus democracy. According to the founder of American Bridge, it's been greater than all of the Republican lunacy we have seen. Joining me now is Malcolm Kenyatta, Pennsylvania State Rep and Chair of President Biden's Advisory Commission on Advancing Educational Equity, Excellence and Economic Opportunity for Black Americans. Well, let me, let me say the chair is Speaker Emerita, Nancy Pelosi. I don't want to get in trouble. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, she, she's the boss. We are going to confuse. I, we, uh, we upgraded you for just the intro to the segment. You're very important to the Biden administration. <laughs> How about we leave it there? Um, Pennsylvania. Malcolm Kenyatta, I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania in the 2020 election. It sounds like anybody who's a national political reporter is going to be spending more time there this time around as well. Can you talk a little bit about how, I mean, there are some interesting dynamics there, right? There's white working class voters and urban black voters, right? And President Biden is making concerted outreaches to both groups. Talk to me about how the he calibrates the message for a state as large and diverse as Pennsylvania. You know, you've seen it in the messaging that you've uh, seen for a long time from the president, really going back to his first campaign, where he's talking about the threat to our democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason you see the president honing in there is because this next election is literally about whether or not we have elections in the United States. And if we don't have a functioning democracy, one where folks can show up to vote, 
pick their elected officials, and then ensure that those elected officials are working on the priorities that matter to them, then all the basic freedoms to choose um, what happens with your own body and not have politicians making decisions about you in the doctor's office, whether or not um, people can have more access to the American promise and economic growth, whether or not people can send their kids to a school where they're getting a quality education and not having the dictionary banned in the school like we're seeing in Florida. And so this president has been crystal clear about what is at stake in this election. And I don't think anybody um, shares that message um, better than Joe Biden. The clip we played of him is him talking about the Biden economy, which is, to his credit, much better than is, I think, widely understood or is colloquially understood. We are told that that's the message that needs to be hammered home over and over and over again across the country. But you're talking about democracy, which I agree with you is a super important part of, you know, American life. Is the dem- is the democracy message the thing that is most resonant, for example, with black voters, um, young black voters that we know have not been as supportive of President Biden in recent months as they were in 2020? Well, this is not an either or proposition. Mm -hmm. Our democracy is the foundation that allows everything else that we need to be to be possible. And so when we think about the fact that just a couple of days ago, Donald Trump actually told the truth when he said he's the reason we no longer have Roe v. Wade in this country. That is true. Fact check. True. When Donald Trump, when you hear him talk about what his vision is for our economy, that vision is not include black voters and young people like me at all, folks who are trying to buy that first home or um, grow or expand their um, expand their family. His vision for the economy is making sure folks like him do better and better and better. You know, there's recent reporting that he wants to take the Trump tax credits that gave all these incredible benefits to the wealthiest Americans, and he wants to supercharge those tax credits. Trump has made it clear that his this election is about him, Mm -hmm. that this election is not about the hardworking Pennsylvanians who President Biden um, is not only talking to, but who I am confident are going to vote for him because they do understand that this is a race between Scranton and Wall Street. And we know who Donald Trump is in this for, certainly not for folks all across Pennsylvania. What I don't get is like, so you hear these reports of like the White House is saying that Joe Biden's going to be more relaxed, fewer ties, smaller events, you know, reconnecting with Scranton, the Scranton Joe persona or whatever. Whatever. It, it is endlessly perplexing to me that Democrats can't get credit for being economic populists. Is it because a lot of the economic populism is rooted in, like, I don't know, some policy that we heard from AOC or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or, you know, progressives who are college educated? But at, the, at, at its heart, the Biden policies have deeply benefited the working class and the white working class. And yet over and over again, we're told there's this shared feeling among, you know, white blue collar workers that Joe Biden hasn't been good for them. What is at the root of that? You know, we're in this moment where so many people, rightfully so, when you think about what you've talked about, the violence that the former president is pushing, the outrageous uh, policy proposals that, that he has, we're in a moment where so much is, is on fire. And Trump has this job of just throwing more matches. Mm -hmm. And Joe Biden has not only been putting out 
the, the fire, but he's been building things in our economy to take the place of the wreckage that we saw from four years of Donald Trump's failed policies. Listen, facts are stubborn things. Mm. We have 14 million jobs created under this president. When you look at all of the stock markets, they've higher than they've ever been. Uh, core inflation lower than what it was before President Biden got into office. For black wealth, 60% increase in black wealth, lowest unemployment for black Americans, the cost of insulin at 35 bucks. And I talk about these things with a vigor because for me and all the folks who are supporting Joe Biden, we know that these aren't hypotheticals. We know the real impacts that these have on real people and their real lives. And so Donald Trump is going to, you know, keep playing games, keep continuing to make it clear that he wants to be a dictator on day one. He has no respect for our democracy. And Joe Biden is going to keep doing what he does, deliver for the American people. And now we have, you know, 11 months to go out and talk to people about what's been done. I'm excited for that. In an aviator sunglasses. That's right. Sure, he'll That's do right. it. Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, thank you so much for your time, Malcolm. I appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come tonight, the U.S. launches new strikes on Houthi targets for the second night running. We'll have a live report from the Pentagon. That's coming up next. Tonight, for a second night in a row, the United States has carried out targeted airstrikes against Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. This is a developing story, and our teams are working to confirm more details. But what we know at this very moment is that the target was a Houthi radar site. Last night's attack was conducted alongside the British military and in coordination with other international allies. Tonight, two U.S. defense officials told NBC the attack was unilateral by the U.S. and it was conducted from a U.S. Navy ship. The Biden administration is saying these are defensive strikes after Houthi militants, for months now, have launched at least 27 strikes on international ships sailing through the Red Sea, which is, of course, a crucial shipping route through which the U.S. says 15 percent of global sea trade travels, including oil. The Houthis say the strikes are in protest against Israel's military campaign in Gaza that has killed more than 20,000 civilians, according to Palestinian authorities. Joining us now is Courtney Kuby, NBC News correspondent and covering national security and the military. Courtney, do you have any intel about why the radar facility was was targeted here? Yeah, so the radars can be used for a number of things. Particularly, they can be used to target a ship out in the Red Sea, which is one of the the major ways that we have seen the Houthis really threaten commercial shipping in the southern Red Sea over recent weeks. So we've seen the Houthis launch off one-way attack drones. Those are smaller drones that are, are packed with explosives. The goal is they just ram them into a ship, causing damage and, and even worse at times. The other major uh, projectiles that the Houthis have been using have been anti-ship cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. So the radars provide, in some cases, targeting for those systems. They can also, though, provide uh, targeting uh, for air defenses. So the U.S., the U.S. and the British military last night conducting these strikes, it included manned aircraft. So if these are for air defenses, you can think they might be wanting to preserve their ability to carry out future manned strikes without having the threat of the Houthi air defenses potentially threatening their their manned systems like F-18s. 
But the other strikes that they took last night, and we should point out, tonight's strike, it was just one target. Uh, it is much, much smaller than the really the barrage of strikes that we saw the U.S. and the British military take last night. More than 150 precision-guided bombs and missiles targeted more than 60 different targets last night. They really were aiming here to degrade the Houthis' capabilities to continue carrying out these attacks and threatening the waterways in the southern Red Sea. And Alex, as you know, we have seen a real impact on global shipping because of these threats. Many major carriers are now rerouting their ships outside of the Red Sea, going way out of their way around the southern coast of Africa, adding time and cost, and the concern here, that cost will ultimately be on the shoulders of the consumers who will be paying more for their goods because of this additional shipping time. But in addition to that, there's the continuing concern about the, the regional tensions there, the U.S. being dragged further in. Now imagine if one of these Houthi attacks with a drone or a missile hit a U.S. military ship, the U.S. military and the U.S. would be uh, would immediately be drawn even more into this regional conflict, Alex. Yeah, well, the price of consumer goods versus potential war with Iran. Um, Courtney, we know the Houthis have said they will they, they are vowing to respond to these attacks. The U.S. is warning ships to stay out of the Red Sea for all the reasons you just outlined. Do we have a sense of what retaliation is being, whether, it, has there been retaliation? Do we have a sense of what might happen here um, and the sort of scale of that retaliation? So we've seen one retaliatory strike so far. The Houthis fired off a ballistic missile today. It landed in the Red Sea, didn't come anywhere near any ships. Uh, but that's all we've seen so far. And I think the big question here, Alex, is how much of a degradation of the Houthi military capability did the U.S. and British military really inflict on them last night with these strikes? We know, again, they hit the radar sites, ammunition, depots, places where they store some of these drones, maybe put some of them together command and control nodes. Um, they really were trying to, uh, launchers, they were really trying to take out their ability here. And I think the coming days and maybe even weeks will be very telling for how successful they were at degrading their capabilities. We saw the one strike, the one attack today. Will we see any large scale attacks like we've seen in recent weeks? That's what we're really waiting, waiting to, to see what happens here, Alex. It is a fluid situation, a kinetic situation, they say, as they say in times of war or yeah. not quite war. NBC News correspondent Courtney Kuby from the Pentagon. Thank you so much, Courtney. Very, very helpful. Thanks. We have one more story for you tonight. Fights over books in school libraries have now reached peak madness. We will explain just ahead. It happened in the blue state of Massachusetts. Last month, a plainclothes police officer wearing a body cam entered a middle school classroom after classes were done for the day. He came there to investigate a potential crime of obscenity after an anonymous caller complained about seeing a book with allegedly sexually explicit images on a shelf in the classroom. The book is Genderqueer, one of the most commonly challenged books in the United States. Here's how that investigation went as captured by the officer's camera. So this is the issue. Okay. Um, it's, it's, not the, it's not the general idea of what the book's about. It's, I can't present that kind of material to people under okay. 18. Um, so that's our concern. Um, that's why we're here. Yeah, it's a memoir about coming of age. It turned out that the book was not actually in the teacher's classroom at that moment, so the officer could not seize it. Now, the police later apologized, and last night the school district initiated an investigation into how this happened, but still, it very much happened. 
in the state of Massachusetts. On the other side of the country, some people would like to see more of this kind of thing. A few weeks ago in El Paso County, Colorado, a group of Republicans delivered a petition to their local prosecutor calling for him to enforce obscenity laws and remove hundreds of books from local schools. And then there is what is happening this week in the Escambia County, Florida, school district. Dictionaries, as in dictionaries, were taken off library shelves because they describe words like sex. And that could potentially put the school libraries in violation of a Florida law signed by Governor DeSantis last year that gives any person in the state the right to demand the removal of any book that depicts or describes sexual conduct. The dictionaries are part of a list of more than 1,600 titles, including the Guinness Book of World Records, the Diary of Anne Frank, and biographies of Beyonce and Oprah Winfrey, all of which are now under review in the Escambia County School District according to the Florida Freedom to Read Project. To be clear, the district has said that the 1,000-plus books have not been banned or removed from the school district. Rather, they have simply been pulled for further review to ensure compliance with the new legislation. In other words, dictionaries may still be available to school students at some point once they have been deemed safe for consumption. In the meantime, a federal judge has ruled that a lawsuit filed by Penn America, along with authors of some of the challenged books, as well as concerned parents who, I don't know, think dictionaries are useful in school. A federal judge has ruled that that lawsuit against the Escambia County schools can move forward to a potential jury trial. Stay tuned. That is our show for tonight. 